This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Have you ever had to stop and ask for directions? I remember being on my honeymoon with my wife, Kristen, and we got turned around in Miami on our way down to Key West and having to stop and find directions, get our way through Miami down to the Keys was quite the adventure. Now, I don't know in today's time and age with digital maps and turn-by-turn navigation, if you've had to stop and ask for directions recently, but if you do, it can be very frustrating. Not being able to just simply arrive at your destination especially if you know that something wonderful or someone very important is waiting there. Having to stop and ask for directions can be humbling, but it's so important if you want to arrive. Probably one of the greatest stories of having to ask for directions is found in the Bible. It's a story about a group of people who have, have been well-read, who are well-educated. They're considered scholars or advisors of the day. And they have seen a sign that has piqued their interest and they have left their home and by foot, they have traveled perhaps 800 or more miles west looking for a newborn king. If you don't know the story yet, the story that I'm talking about is found in Matthew chapter two. And it's a story of the Magi or wise men. You may have heard of that of them as the three wise men, but probably there were quite a few more as they traveled in large companies. And this group of people were very well read and scholarly of the day. They were sought after for their advice and they would go and anoint new kings. And seeing some sort of sign in the celestial skies, they were motivated to start a journey. They were seekers. They weren't Jewish, they were Gentiles. But they have come to Israel to see this newborn king, one that they have seen the signs of. And thinking of where to find a newborn king, they go to a palace. And as they arrive at the palace, they find out that there is no newborn king, just an old, grumpy one, a terrible one by the name of Herod. Herod's an awful king who has murdered family members, who has betrayed people, who has run Judea into the ground. And there they inquire of him, where is this new king of Israel? Well, here's the thing. The place they stop for directions, they don't even know. Herod doesn't know what they're talking about. In fact, he feels rather threatened by it because if there's a new king born, well, that would mean that his kingship's on the way out. And so he asks for directions. He gathers the chief priests and the scribes together. And there he inquires of them, where has God promised his new king to be born? Those scribes and chief priests, they open up their scriptures to the prophet of Micah. Micah wrote these words that they read 750 years earlier. And there Micah was recording God's great promise to send a king, a rescuer, known as the Messiah, God's promised one. In Greek, it is the Christ, into the town of Bethlehem. Upon receiving those directions, the Magi leave and continue their journey seeking what they are hoping to find, a newborn king. Now, here's the thing about Micah's prophecy. It was far more 
than just simply the location of where the king of Israel was going to be born. It actually is all about where you can find the source of hope. It's the directions of where one searches for God's promised hope. So let me ask you this question that I asked before. Have you ever had to stop and ask for directions? Maybe not for a location, but for hope. Have you ever been to a place in your life where the days seem ruined, anxiety seems rampant, grief is raging, and you can't see the days forward? And so perhaps you stop and you have called a friend or you schedule an appointment with a counselor or you reach out to a pastor to get some directions of what to do and how to move forward. Where is the source of hope of a new day, a better day in the future? Well, Micah has that direction for you. So maybe if you find yourself in that situation today, that you need directions of where the source of God's promised hope comes from, or maybe you know someone, a friend, who would benefit from your knowledge of knowing how to direct them to the source of God's promised hope, then grab your Bible and we're gonna go to Micah chapter five. Micah's an Old Testament prophet, as we said, who wrote these words 750 years before the arrival of Christ. And Micah is a prophet in a long line of prophets that have been sent to Israel, God's people, to call God's people back to the ways they're supposed to be living. They've had evil leadership, unjust rulers that have hurt the people, that have embraced uh, cultural norms that God wants nothing for them to do with. And here God has sent his prophets over the years because God is slow to anger. But over the years, they have rejected God. They have rejected his prophets. They have rejected his gentle call back to himself. And because God is good, He has to bring judgment. God would not be good if he lets evil and wickedness, oppression go unanswered. And so though many warnings have come and the people have rejected God's warning to the prophets, now Micah writes to the people of Israel to tell them that God's judgment is coming and that he's going to use a neighboring country, a country of Assyria, to come into the northern kingdom and take it, lay siege on it, ruin it, and take its inhabitants as captives back to Assyria. It's terrible news. But the way that Micah is laid out is throughout his book, throughout his writings, he talks about God's great judgment that's coming on the people's evil and wickedness. But, but, because of who God is, compassionate, full of mercy and love, There is hope that God's judgments and wrath will not last forever and that God will bring a new day so that he will be compassionate to the people and restore the people, call the people once again to repentance and reconciliation to him. And so that's kind of the storyline of Micah, that God's judgment's coming on wickedness and evil because they have not turned back to him. But, but God is slow and compassionate, full of love and mercy, and will send a rescuer, a promised rescuer, to restore Israel back to himself. So that's where we find ourselves in Micah chapter five. This is where the priests and the scribes turned Herod and the Magi to. Look at verse one. Micah says, 
Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So right off the bat, Assyria is coming in. There's nothing we can do about that. In fact, it would be foolish for us to try to stand and defeat him. It won't happen. They're going to come in and they're going to humiliate the leadership of Israel. And then verse two, but, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brother shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. That's where the scribes read to Herod and the Magi. And there's three things I want you to see in this text about the source of God's promised hope. It's smallness, it's greatness, and it's strength. I want you to see the smallness, the greatness, and strength of God's promised hope. Right here it says, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Ephrathah is the region or the district that Bethlehem exists in. It's to point out that this Bethlehem is the Bethlehem south of Jerusalem, the city of David, not the Bethlehem that's north of Jerusalem in the city of Galilee or outside Galilee. It's kind of the difference between Erie, Colorado and Erie, Pennsylvania. You'd kind of know which state, you'd want to know which state you're talking about. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, He's talking about a small city that's insignificant, that's easily forgotten, that nobody even thinks about. That perhaps even when the Magi heard that, they, that the, the king was going to be born in Bethlehem, they'd also have to ask for direc- some directions of how to get to Bethlehem. So someone, someone who's local would have to lead them to Bethlehem or point out the way. Bethlehem, I think of as like the city that I live in now, Erie, Colorado, just outside of Boulder, Colorado. And whenever I'm outside the front range and people ask me where I'm from, I will most often say Boulder. And that's because I was born and raised and spent most of my life in Boulder, though I now live in Erie. But also because nobody knows where Erie, Colorado is. Even in Denver or you're in Colorado Springs or up north in Fort Collins, they say, where are, where are you from? They say, oh, well, we're living in Erie, Colorado. Like, I don't know where that is. Where, is that in Colorado, the front range at the Western Slope? Never heard of it. Or perhaps even those who have heard of Erie, Colorado are like, oh yeah, isn't that like where the regional landfill is? And you're like, yeah, there's, there's a dump in Erie, but we also have a velodrome. It's a pretty awesome place. That's like Bethlehem. And the reason that God uses Bethlehem isn't only to connect to the fulfillment of David, but to show that his great hope can come from the smallest most insignificant of unlikely places. This is the nature of our God, is to use small places, weak things, foolish things to accomplish his purposes. Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians that God loves to use the foolish to shame the wise, to use the things that are weak to bring down the strong. That is how our God loves to birth hope into our world. 
This is similar to the same story that connects Jesus with David when David was called king through the prophet Samuel. This is back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where God says to Samuel, why are you so grieving over Saul? Head over to Bethlehem and there you will find a family whose father is Jesse, a Bethlehemite. And from his sons, choose for me a new king. And Samuel goes over there and all the sons are paraded in front of Samuel. And he rejects them one by one. He says, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, well, I have one baby son. I don't really cares about. He's just out with the sheep. His name is David. Samuel says, bring him here. And God tells Samuel, don't look at the outward appearance of a man, but God looks at his heart. And this young man's heart is for me. And I will use the youngest of a family from a city that is insignificant to rule and reign over Israel. And from his family, I will bring a greater king from the same city one day to be the king and savior of the world. This is why it's important to us. If you feel like you're somebody who's a nobody, if you feel like you're a somebody that everyone has forgotten about, if you feel like your life is such a mess that God couldn't possibly do anything with you, this story begins to say to you, God loves to use small insignificant things, train wrecks like me, perhaps like you, to use them as instruments to birth a hope for the world. And here in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who's too little to be counted amongst the clans of Judah, when Joshua came into the land, he's dividing up the land for Judah. He doesn't even mention Bethlehem, but it's in Bethlehem in its smallness that God's hope is promised. And then he says, that's the smallness of his hope, but then there's the greatness of his hope, that one will come forth from, from you for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. These two titles, from of old and ancient days, speak about the greatness of the one who is to be born. This ancient of days is a reference to 2 Samuel 7 reference to David himself. This is the historical roots of the one born in Bethlehem to fulfill the promise that God gave to David that from his offspring will come a ruler whose kingdom will never end. This second phrase right here, from of old, is only used a couple times and it's used of God. It's to speak of his eternal origins his divine origins. Psalm 74, 12 points this out. Yet God, my King, who is of old, speaking about his divine, eternal origins. And so Micah's representing something here that's known only to God, probably not to everyone, that this child that will be born will be both historical and eternal. This is what John later unpacks for us in his gospel, that Jesus is the word. And the word in the very beginning was with God and was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. One who is of historical origin from the house of David and also has eternal origins because he is God himself. That's the greatness of hope, that God himself is coming, 
that God's not going to send just another teacher or another prophet to point the way or to show the way, but that God himself is coming to make the way from the smallness of a town called Bethlehem. So the smallness is Bethlehem. The greatness is that God is coming. And the security is this, that he's coming to be a ruler, one who is to be ruler in Israel. See, for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, we follow him as our ruler. He's the ruler. What does ruler mean? It means that he gets to call the shots, that he gets to say what's right, what's wrong, what's good. He's the one that gets to have ownership over my life and I follow him even when I don't understand. See, my following Jesus isn't simply fond affections of him, though I do love him. It is that he is the ruler of my life. That if we want the source of God's hope, we have to change who is our ruler. I don't know about you, but I spent a large part of my life being my own ruler, calling the shots for myself, trying to search deep down inside me and try to figure out what do I feel like is right? And what do I feel like I should do? Who do I think I should become? And it didn't lead me very, very well. It caused me so much pain, shame, and guilt. And before I, I submitted myself to Christ, there were other rulers I tried to allow people to rule my life and their opinions, accomplishments to rule my life and give me my worth. I have to change the rulership of my life to Jesus. That's the source of God's promised hope. And it can be hard to do that because when it comes down to it, rulership is simply obedience, isn't it? And nobody likes to be told what to do. That is evident with our society today. But think about this with, I think about this with my kids. I have my young kids and every time I tell them to do something, what's the first question they ask me? Why? Why do we do that? It doesn't matter what we're doing. Like, why can't I have ice cream at midnight? Why can't I have cookies? Why can't I just be in my pajamas all day? Why do I have to wear my seatbelt? And, you know, I've taken enough parenting classes from the Bucknums that I think I'm a reasonable D-plus parent. And I'm trying my best to give the moral reason to why we say these things. But even as I answer their question, they ask another why. So why do I have to wear my seatbelt? Well, because it's the law. Why is it the law? Well, it's trying to keep you safe. Why am I trying to be safe? Well, in case we're in an accident. Why would we be in an accident? Well, someone might hit us. Why would they hit us? Eventually, every good intending parent, full of love and compassion, just turns around and calmly says, because I said so. That's all you want to say. Because you're five and you know nothing. And I have been on the planet longer. And I want you to trust me that I'm your father or I'm your mother and I love you and care for you and want what's best for you. I know we love to ask God why, but if he's ruler, even if he doesn't answer why, I know that I'm his child and he loves me and he wants what's best for me and I can trust him even if I don't know why. I still do what he's asking because he's the ruler of my life. Now, why would anyone make God their ruler? It's because he's not a dictator who oppresses you, 
Look at how Micah describes his rulership. It is so amazing. His rulership, verse four, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. This is the strength of our hope, is that God is not a dictatorial tyrant. He is a shepherd who knows his sheep by name. He is a shepherd that protects his sheep, that provides for his sheep. He is the shepherd that will leave the 99 and go after the one sheep that has wandered from the flock. He is the shepherd, it says right here, who stands. That stands is so important. He's not a sitting shepherd where he can't see you or see the threat ahead. No, he's the standing shepherd. He stands at attention. He's not a sleeping shepherd. He's a standing shepherd, which means he will not sleep or slumber. He will stand and shepherd. He will stand in the face of opposition. He will stand against the wolves in your life. He will stand against the threats to his sheep. He is the standing shepherd and he will shepherd in the strength of the Lord. There's no greater strength than the strength of the Lord. Some men hope in chariots and some in horses. Some hope in money and their own ability, their own intelligence or wit. But we will hope in the greatest source of strength, which is the Lord. That is Jesus, that he is the standing shepherd. And look what happens. Because we surrender to his rulership as a standing shepherd, we dwell secure to the ends of the earth. So not only is this a king for Israel, but this is a worldwide king. This is a worldwide kingdom to the ends of the earth. This is a multi-ethnic, diverse kingdom in which he is the shepherd of all nations. And they who trust in him dwell secure. They're not filled with worry and anxiety. They trust the good shepherd. And not only do they dwell secure, he shall be their peace. Be their peace. Peace is the, the binding up of what's broken, the bringing back into wholeness. Now, when it says peace here, Micah has probably two things in mind. Yes, a political peace for sure. This is evident between just the chapter before. This is Micah chapter four, verse three. Speaking of God's worldwide rule of all the nations from far and how peaceful it will be one day. That people who have had instruments of war like swords and spears will repurpose them to tools of agriculture into plows, into things of like pruning hooks, and they will learn war no more because this ruler rules in peace to the ends of the earth. Absolutely. There's also a greater peace that he speaks about. And this is the peace between man and God. This is our greatest problem. This is why God's judgment has come on Israel. It's because they lived in evil and wickedness. And there's a greater peace that he will bring. This one born in Bethlehem. He points this out at the end of his book, Micah chapter 7. Look at verse 18 who was a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in the steadfast love. 
He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This strong ruler, great from historical roots and eternal origins, born in a small town of Bethlehem, will ultimately deal with our greatest problem, being separated and afraid of God. So that we will rise in the morning, enjoy the afternoon, lay our heads on our pillows at night and know this, that we are right with God. That we are right with God. That there's no more guilt or shame or condemnation because his promised rescuer has made a way to bring peace between man and God. That's what's prophesied here in Micah. And that is what the Magi are looking for. And they want directions to God's promised source of salvation. That's the hope. Let's go back to Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two is where we find that great and familiar story. The Magi have come into Herod's courts, have asked, where is this king born? Herod has turned to his priests and his scribes and said, where is the promised Christ? And they said, Bethlehem. Verse five, they told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. There they arrive at their destination and they have found the promise of God's hope, the source of hope, of true salvation, the one who brings peace. And do you see what they do here? They worship him. They worship him. What's going on at Christmas? Worship. What's the purpose of Christmas? What are we doing? We're worshiping Christ. If someone were to ask you, what do you do at Christmas? The simplest, poignant answer would be this. I worship Christ. That's what we do. Because I have found the source of hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is not optimism. Hope isn't even wrapped up in our circumstances. Hope is a person. It's Jesus. We hope in God, which is why our hope is so secure. He's unchanging the same yesterday, today, and forever. We hope in God because of his personhood, of who his character is, loving and compassionate, full of mercy and grace, will deal with evil and wickedness and death. And because of his promises, both those who have those have been fulfilled and those who are being yet fulfilled, 
But all of his promises that we hope in for us of being saved, of being forgiven, of having an inheritance, of having eternal life, all of the promises we hope for are in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, all the promises of God, all the promises of God, every single one of them, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. They find their yes in him. And that is why we, through Jesus, offer our amen, our period, our exclamation mark, our praise to God for his glory. What is the source of hope? It is Jesus Christ. All the promises of God find their yes in him. And when the wise men found him, they worshiped. That's what Christmas is. I don't know if you need directions to the source of hope, but it is Jesus Christ. And I don't know if your friends, family members are at a place where they need the directions of true eternal hope. I hope you would show them the directions to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every man and woman listening. I pray that they would know of God's great hope born in a small town of Bethlehem who has roots that are historic and origins that are eternal, whose strength is the Lord. I pray that they would turn their eyes and their ears and their hearts towards him and find peace, forgiveness, and security. I pray for everyone who doesn't know Christ that's hearing my voice right now. Father, I pray that you would awaken inside them a longing for you. I pray that you would awaken inside them a conviction of their own sins and the assurance that you can forgive them. In all of this, Lord, we entrust the church to you, which is your bride, which you are the head. We pray that you would do the great work of assuring us of hope in your son, of our salvation, and that we would return worship to you. Great is your name and greatly to be praised. Amen.